to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Jetsama Akon Lamo takes us through the steps that will support and lead to our own enlightenment, as well as those who have hopes of us. Bodhicitta is the great compassion. It's the awakening state. It is that which is inseparable from enlightenment itself. And I have very good fortune. My good fortune is that generally, for some reason I can't fathom, I tend to draw students that are interested in bodhicitta. They are interested in the practice of compassion. It's not to say that every student, when they walk through this door, has mastery of the practice of compassion. It doesn't mean that uh, when we come through this door, already all refinements have been made and, and there's nothing to do but be happy about it. But it does mean that the students that I tend to draw have some kind of karmic connection, some sort of, well, I can only say connection with the practice of bodhicitta or the the idea of bodhicitta. And for that, I consider myself very fortunate. And I consider my students very fortunate as well. Because there are many There's, there's a lot of misinformation about what one's path should be, about the study of Buddha nature, about the study of Dharma and its varied practices, but particularly about what that precious awakened state that the Buddha spoke of and that the Buddha displayed actually is. Many of us have ideas about what that precious awakened state is about, that state of enlightenment. We think that enlightenment has a certain image, that it looks a certain way, that maybe people that are enlightened are very tall. (laughs) There you go, Richard. That was your big shot there, buddy. Or maybe we think that people, that that enlightenment makes us very somber and very masterful looking. Or maybe we think that enlightenment um, makes us go and sit on a rock for a long time and contemplate, be very quiet. And maybe we think that enlightenment requires that we can be completely separate from the world that we go sit on a mountain in the Himalayas somewhere and, and have no earthly idea how to catch a taxi cab. <laughs> All of us have different ideas about enlightenment, and the reason why I'm making such a big deal about that is because of where I'm living right now. I'm living in Sedona, Arizona, where, which is a very uh, new age spiritual kind of place. And um, it's, it's interesting to 
hear all the different ideas that people have about what enlightenment ought to look like. It's just pretty darn interesting. So a lot of people have the idea that what the Buddha displayed and what the Buddha taught was more about show and tell than actuality. Most people think that enlightenment is some sort of demeanor that one carries, some sort of appearance that one holds, uh, a certain look that one has, um, perhaps a, a set of mannerisms that we consider or we picture to be very holy. Perhaps enlightened people are always very dignified. Perhaps they hold enormous titles. We just have all these funny ideas, and a lot of people feel that true enlightenment is really about withdrawing, having no interaction with any other sentient being or with the world, and maybe accomplishing a kind of self-mastery. Well, unfortunately, that may not be the correct idea. Because in order for us to practice self-mastery, we have not achieved the precious awakened state. We are still locked into the belief in self-nature as being inherently real. And therefore, we are, while we are doing that, when we are locked into self-nature being inherently real, we are also locked into the appearance of phenomena as being inherently solid and also real. And that is delusion. <coughs> And even if we have accomplished some kind of self-mastery that means we have mastered our emotional fluctuations and our moods and we have maybe mastered our physical body, maybe we can make it sit for a long time in a lotus position or something like that. We have this idea that if we do these things, that perhaps we will have achieved enlightenment. <clears throat> but in fact, in the Buddha Dharma, we are taught that the precious awakened state can be considered like, like the sun, if you will. To consider the precious awakened state like the sun, we could consider the bodhicitta to be like the sun's rays. Bodhicitta, or the great compassion, could be considered an emanation or display of that precious awakened state. These two are synonymous and inseparable from one another. To be fully awakened as the Buddha is awakened, one is the very display of bodhicitta or compassion. In the same way that the sun and the sun's rays cannot be separated and they are part of the same reality, in that way enlightenment, the practice of compassion or the giving rise to bodhicitta, these are the same as well. <laughs> the bodhicitta is the very display of enlightenment itself. When we think about the bodhicitta, we think that perhaps it is the idea of being kind of like a good person. And so maybe we're falling into the trap of thinking, oh, even, even if what she says is true, then if I were to be enlightened, I would be a great master, and then on top of that, I would be a good person. Well, that's not really how it is. This, this giving rise to the bodhicitta 
is a natural expression of the state of awakening or the precious enlightenment that Lord Buddha himself talked about. In that precious state of awakening, we realize, or it, it is understood, that all sentient beings are inherently the same, and that their nature is that primordial wisdom view, that primordial wisdom nature, that uncontrived reality that is our true nature, that is not separate, is free of all conceptualization. It is unborn and yet completely finished and realized. That state is literally without description. <clears throat> As we demonstrate the bodhicitta, we know that at, that at that point we are actually giving rise to the state of enlightenment. These two cannot be separated. And no matter how we think of it, whatever view we hold as to what all of this must look like, it has to be understood that without bodhicitta, without giving rise to this supreme compassion, without giving rise to the very notion or thought that the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings is what is really important and what is really the point of practice. Without giving rise to that, there simply is no realization. As one approaches, perhaps, the state of realization, one of the amazing things that we might come to know is the awareness that all sentient beings are that same nature, free of any contrivance and inseparable from one another. So that for me to be some kind of great master or for you to be some kind of great master sitting on a rock somewhere, simply meditating on self-perfection, what would that really amount to if you thought about it? that would amount in amount to, well, self-perfection. But the self would still be there, and the self by its nature really cannot be perfect. In that state of awakening, one notices, or one is certain, I should say, or gives rise to the awareness that in truth, I cannot be separated from you. And for one to achieve realization, one recognizes that the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings is equal to and non-dual with our own salvation. Literally, the awakening bodhisattva knows that he or she cannot be free without the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings that the idea of self-mastery or maybe, maybe uh, achieving some sort of realization that you can hold and carry away, that maybe that idea, that very idea, is a delusion.
The bodhicitta is literally our great hope. Without the, the, the great bodhisattvas and the great Buddhas giving rise to the bodhicitta, there would be no teachers returning to the world for our sake. There would be no path, because none of the bodhisattvas, none of the Buddhas would have come and offered the path to this world. So there would be no method. And of course, if there is no method, there could be no result. So it's the commitment, the compassion, the nature of the bodhisattvas, of the Buddhas, of these lamas that return again and again and again for our sake, that give us the hope that we have today. Even when we recite our lineage prayers, even when we think about what it is that has brought us to this moment, when we recite our lineage prayers, those of you that have practiced here for a while, there's a long list of the most magnificent bodhisattvas, each one having accomplished well, things that we couldn't even imagine. Each one of them have an, having accomplished amazing states of realization and bliss, amazing states of accomplishment, and having passed that knowledge and wisdom and that ability and those teachings on from teacher to student, and from the student becoming a teacher to their student, to their student, to their student, and a great unbroken lineage that brings us to this point today. And that lineage is the very display of bodhicitta. That's what it is. It is the appearance of that enlightened intention, of Lord Buddha's enlightened compassion, of Guru Rinpoche's miraculous activity, it is the display of that nature entering into the world that is the very lineage that we draw the milk of Dharma from. So this bodhicitta is the most precious and it is the only hope that any of us have. So to me, if I can teach about the bodhicitta every time I teach, I'm satisfied. I feel like I hold in my heart very carefully what Lord Buddha himself actually said. When he said, well, I don't remember the words exactly, but he said something like this. I'll have to use my own language if you'll forgive me. Remember, he didn't come from Brooklyn. <laughs> Lord Buddha himself said, if you have the practice of bodhicitta, you have everything. That is enough. So within that amazing practice, within that amazing teaching, is everything that we need. How phenomenal. The logic for understanding why that is so is as I have described. The bodhicitta is inseparable from the very nature of enlightenment itself. It is the, the display of that Buddha nature that appears as the bodhicitta. It is the expression of that nature that is the living reality of the Buddha, Buddha Dharma practiced in this world. When our teachers come to teach us, 
The reason that they do so and the method that they use is the great bodhicitta. It is the reality that is the basis, the foundation for everything that we do. And so to understand something about the bodhicitta is extremely important. To give rise to the, to the bodhicitta is, is even more important still. But in order to do so, we have to build a foundation. And that foundation has to be one of understanding. To understand the condition of sentient beings and the reality of the cycle of death and rebirth or samsara. To understand that naturally offers us a way by which we can give rise to the bodhicitta. The Buddha teaches us that we should always, from the first moment we pick up dharma till the, till the very last moment of accomplishment, we should always, always contemplate on the faults of cyclic existence. When we talk about the faults of cyclic existence, well, sometimes modern people think, I'd rather not think about the faults of modern existence. I'd, I'd rather not think of the faults of cyclic existence. I would rather have a positive attitude. I would rather not think in a negative way. And my answer to that is always something like, well, the moment you're born, you have a journey in front of you. And that journey is kind of like walking through a room. You know, you come in the door of birth and you go out the door of death. And in the meantime, you're traveling through this room. This room is full of obstacles, furniture, tables, all kinds of stuff, symbolically speaking. This room is full of all kinds of obstacles. Now you have a choice here. You can either turn off the lights, pull the shades, and have it be perfectly pitch back and stumble your way through and hope that you don't hurt yourself too bad. Take a shot. Or you can turn on the light, see where the obstacles are, and move around them, move over them, move through them, whatever it is that's required. For myself, I choose to be more practical. And in my thinking, even as a modern woman, this practice of bodhicitta, this giving rise to compassion, this practice of dharma is a very practical thing to do. I prefer to go through this journey of life being aware of the obstacles and having the tools in my hand to be able to overcome them. Why leave everything up to chance? So that being the choice, we begin to study about the faults of cyclic existence. And we notice that there are certain things about cyclic existence that if once we realize, may change our view about everything. And I've talked about this before, and even this weekend I've talked about it, but one of the most astounding realizations that we obviously don't have yet, when I say obviously don't have, I say that because you can tell by how we act. Not by what we say. We might say we understand this, but clearly by the way we act, we do not understand that there is no material accomplishment or possession 
or ordinary thing that you can accomplish in this lifetime that you can actually take with you at the time of your death. We don't act like we understand that. We, we say we do. I mean, logically, you know that when you die, that's it. You know, you, your body doesn't go with you. Nothing that you've got goes with you. But if you watch the way we act, we act like people who think this is going to go on forever. Who think that all we have to do is keep accumulating, 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 and bingo, we're going to be happy. That's the way we act. And yet we don't take the time to give rise to these inner good qualities. Habits of mind that are pure, thoughtful, and virtuous. We don't give rise to the capacity to, to love more, to be more compassionate. We don't give rise to generosity. And yet these are habitual tendencies. These are qualities of mind that literally you can take with you. The seeds that one plants in one life do manifest in the next. So it's like we've got everything backwards. We think, oh, I'd better do everything that my culture and my society and even my parents has told me to be successful at. Never mind all those subtle things. We'll leave that for when I get old and have lots of time. <coughs> or maybe not. Maybe we won't even care. Maybe we'll just play golf. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have known people that think that it's a worthy thing to spend the last days of their life doing things that I wouldn't have done on the first days of my life. <laughs> Just wasting time, wasting time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so, we act like people who really don't understand anything at all. It seems like we spend our lives very, very busy, working very, very hard with constant distractions. And it's not that we're lazy. It's not that we just lay around. It's not that we don't try. We are the kings and queens of trying. And we are busy all the time. But it's like we have mixed messages. We don't really know what to be busy with. We're told that in order to be a successful person, you have to gather a, enough together so that you can leave something to other people after you die. I mean money and possessions and houses and cars and stuff like that. And we are told that you know, in order to be really successful, all of our children have to go to great colleges and they should all be doctors and lawyers and, and, and we have all these crazy standards and we either measure up to them or maybe up to one or two of them and we spend our whole lives working so, so hard at this. I mean, it's not like people are lazy. We're not just hanging out drinking lemonade. 
And yet, at the end of our lives, one of the things that is universally true is that each of us in our own way, according to our, again, habitual tendency and karmic capacity, we realize at the end of our lives that we have just had this glorious opportunity that literally we have gone to this continent full of gems and we've walked away empty-handed. That realization at the end of one's life when you say, if only, if only I had practiced, if only I had developed some spiritual inner qualities that could see me through this time. If only I had not wasted my time as a human being, but maybe given rise to some compassion or some something worthy instead of this money I accumulated and these houses and this property, and what, what good is it now? This is a common thing that happens to us at the end of our lives. And the great thing about practicing the Buddha Dharma is that we get to consider these things while there is still time, while our lives are still going on. Now, one of the things the Buddha prepare, one of the things that the Buddha prepares us for is that life is not permanent, is that all things are impermanent. And once again, we say, ha ha ha, I know that. Birth and death, I got that. But we don't act like people that know that. <laughs> we don't act like people that understand everything is impermanent. We act like people that grab for something, whether it's a thing or a state of mind or an event or a vacation or whatever it happens to be. We grab for that or a person or a marriage or a whatever. We grab for that and we think, I've got that. I have that. Now I will be happy. And we think that that's going to do it for us. If only I had that marriage. If only I had that job. If only I had that money or situation. Then I would be happy. And we act like people who genuinely think that somehow an impermanent thing could make a difference in an impermanent life that's permanent. A permanent difference. How could that be? So logically we know this is not true, but emotionally we act like people who believe it will always be this way. And we can stay right here and comfortably collect our material reality. That's why the Buddha taught in the way that he did, asking us to contemplate impermanence, to contemplate the nature of samsara, its faults, its indications and its qualities. Not because upon hearing these things we could we could just memorize the facts and and not because you know we we we, we logically we, we need to logically know this stuff and then that's it we just know it in our minds the buddha taught us to contemplate these things again and again why because in our delusion we have so reinforced these false assumptions about what's really important 
in our lives that even though logically we know we can't take it with us, even though logically we know that everything's impermanent, emotionally, psychically, we act as if we don't understand anything. And what that is, is a visible display of our habitual tendencies. We literally have the habit of samsaric beings. We have the habit of beings who are wandering in samsara and think in that way. We have the habit of delusion. Contemplation, therefore, is meant to slowly, slowly transform that habitual tendency. It's not all that different from what? Quitting smoking. You know, if you, if, you, if you are a smoker, every time you pick up that cigarette and smoke that cigarette and continue on with your lung cancer thing there, <laughs> every time that you do that, you're putting more and more weight in the addictive, habitual tendency pile. So this pile's going whoosh, like that. On the other hand, every time that you abstain, that you work on your compulsions, that you uh, find alternative methods, that you allow those compulsions to slip, to slip, to, to relax and to be pacified, it's like you're putting weight in the other pile. So it's kind of like that with our contemplation. While we are constantly involved with samsaric tendencies and samsaric habitual patterns, we are constantly reinforcing all of the causes of suffering, desire, ego clinging, the belief in self-nature as being inherently real, these dualistic ideas. We're constantly reinforcing them as strongly as if we were repeating a mantra constantly practicing delusion. But when we practice the Buddha Dharma, when we begin to contemplate and recognize the faults of cyclic existence and begin to act appropriately based on that understanding, and that would be to practice and to give rise to uh, the bodhicitta, then it's like we're putting some weight in the other pile. And it's not as though... suddenly we are able to argue our way out of our own habitual tendencies. It's more like, and you know how this works with habit patterns. You have that, that habit that you had, but with practice, you can put something in the other pile, and this naturally becomes less of a focus. It naturally pacifies. The great thing about humans is that we literally can't do two things at one time. <laughs> We can't be addicted and not addicted at the same time. We can't be compulsive and not compulsive at the same time. We don't know how. So in practicing this kind of contemplation that gives rise to some understanding and thereby acting accordingly to practice our path, it leaves alone this tendency to accumulate habitual samsaric behavior and begins to weigh in on the other pile.
So contemplation on the Buddha's path is extremely important. And my experience has been if we don't contemplate the faults of cyclic existence, we really forget what the entire point is. Then we slip into the wrong view of thinking, oh, I have to have a spiritual path or I have to be a Buddhist because it's simply exotic, cool, and neat, and it pisses my mother off. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, there's no heart for practice then. You, there's, you might as well you know, pick up a guitar and become a rock singer. That'll piss your mother off, too. <laughs> so it doesn't really, you know, it, you, at that point we don't have the heart for practice. This contemplation then is very, very necessary. So let's examine the faults of cyclic existence. Gee, where do you start? <laughs> My first suggestion as a modern person, and this sounds so fundamental that you would think, gee, I came here for this. My first suggestion as a modern person, see, in the Buddha Dharma we are taught these are the faults of cyclic existence. We open a book and we read a list. And, and, and it's, it's the way that the Buddha Dharma is taught, there are many lists, the tens of this, the seventeens of that, the twenty-fours of the other thing, the, the seven unmentionables and the twenty-seven semi-mentionables and the, you know, it, there's all these grocery lists, you know, of, 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 of things. And, and in the culture that that, that that occurs, there's a common ground there and that's the way, that's the way we think. But in this culture, that's kind of foreign to us. We don't understand listing things and just looking at these lists and saying, okay, that's it. We are, we are modern people and we need to, we were born when there were TVs and radios and satellites and so we need to observe the world around us. So my suggestion is, if you need to understand the faults of cyclic existence like never before, what you need to do is watch CNN. <laughs> I really recommend this. I should be the CNN spokeswoman. <laughs> All you have to do is open your eyes, read the paper, watch the news, and you can see that suffering is all-pervasive. Watching what's happening in Europe right now, we never thought we'd see that again. People herded off in cattle cars. You know, we never, we never thought we'd see that. People stuck together in camps with barbed wire and no food and, and nowhere to go to the bathroom. And we, we never thought we'd see that kind of thing. And yet we are seeing it. Sometimes we get the idea that, oh, certain kinds of suffering, well, we've moved past that. We're not suffering like that anymore. It's ongoing. The Buddha teaches us that the suffering of samsara is cyclic, all-pervasive, and that it is the very nature of samsara to be filled with fault. So we see that suffering is all-pervasive, that it hasn't stopped. There is terrible suffering throughout the world. And we begin to wonder, what can we do about it? Maybe it moves us. Maybe we feel like 
It's unbearable. I've been making myself watch CNN practically all day, a lot. Um, and, and I find that the condition of the world is unbearable. It is unbearable to see that kind of suffering. So we see in this world alone, what the Buddha said about samsara is true. The suffering is all pervasive. Even if we just look at the human condition, this suffering is all pervasive. It never ends. And that's only humans. What about the condition of animals who are killed for their meat or their skin or their pearls like oysters? What about the conditions of animals that are forced to work all day long? They didn't apply for that job. No workman's comp when they break down either. So the condition of animals is terrible. You think, oh, well, you know, I have animals and I take good care of them. Well, that's, that's your animals. But in the, in the realm of the animal kingdom, there is terrible fear and terrible suffering of all kinds. So the Buddha talked about the animal realm and he talked about the human realm and he was right on both accounts. So we have to think that the other teachings that the Buddha has given about the rest of cyclic existence, the form and formless beings that are so many in number and so many in kind that we can't even conceptualize what they are. That in every one of these realms there is so much suffering. It is all pervasive. So that is the reality that we are being taught by the Buddha. Now what what that gives us is the opportunity to make decisions that we couldn't make unless we had that information. Because that information, although sad to hear and sad to face, it really is sad. I mean, it, I, I watch CNN and I cry. It's not like we're emotionally immune. So to watch this kind of thing is, is very, very sad. But. What is the benefit? What does it give us? Well, I would say empowerment. A kind of natural empowerment that tells us we cannot just stand still. That if we have the strength to help or the strength to do in some way, perhaps this is the time. And it makes us feel that we'd like to do something, that we'd like to help that we, we yearn to be able to solve these problems. And ultimately, studying the faults of cyclic existence give us the confidence and the courage and the strength to practice our path for the liberation and salvation of all beings. So. Having seen the suffering of the world and understanding that even only what I can see shows me that indeed suffering is all pervasive and that while we spend our lives in endless distraction, accumulating and doing and busy, 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 busy at the end of it, the sadness and the, and the heartbreak is that we discover we haven't really accomplished what a noble human life could have accomplished. 
Maybe we have engaged in hatred. Maybe thinking we were right, we engaged in anger and hatred and, 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 and judgment of others. Maybe thinking we were superior, we engaged in prejudice and, and bigotry and, and that sort of thing. And maybe ultimate selfishness and maybe terrible compulsions and, and yet we've accumulated lots of money in the bank so it must be okay. At the end of our lives, these things face us and we face them. So I'd like to face them before the end of my life. I'd like to think about this now. When we contemplate on these things, we do, it, we do feel, hopefully, if we contemplate well, some kind of motivation. Realizing that all sentient beings are suffering, we also realize that, according to the Buddha, all sentient beings are the same as us in their nature. That literally my nature is the same as your nature, inseparable, indistinguishable. One is not more or better or bigger than the other. It is the same nature. And our nature is also that nature which results in animals and, and in even the, the meanest, lowest cockroach has within them that spark of Buddha seed. So all sentient beings are the same. And we have one other thing in common. And that is that we're trying to be happy. We're all trying to be happy. We think that different, we have different ideas about what makes happiness but we are all trying to be happy. Even somebody that's a serial killer is trying to be happy, believe it or not. In their sick, twisted way, that, that feeling of excitement or whatever, that, whatever weird feeling they get from that kind of control over someone else's life, in their misguided, turned around minds, they think that's happiness. They think that's what they need. How tragic, how amazing that there was so little understanding of what happiness is and of what the causes of suffering are that while each and every one of us has the same capacity and each of every, and every one of us is equally trying to be happy, some of us might make these terrible mistakes, mistaking happiness for something awful. And that's the other part of the suffering of cyclic existence. That while each and every one of us wants very much to be happy and are striving for happy very, very effortfully, strenuously, we try every day. Yet none of us really knows how to be happy. None of us really knows what causes happiness. Any appearance in phenomenal reality has a seed cause. Happiness has a seed cause. If we don't create the causes for happiness, happiness, the fruit of happiness will not appear. But not having been taught that, we truly do not understand and we spend our energy in this endless kind of 
busy, busy tornado trying to milk some happiness out of this situation. Well, the Buddha teaches us that the causes for happiness are different than we might have thought. It's not a car, it's not a house, it's not a husband or a wife, it's not a family. All those things are great. I hope you have them. I hope you have millions of them. Well, not families, but you know, <laughs> cars. They're all great and I hope you have everything that you want, but these are not the causes of happiness. You know yourself if you've ever gotten a brand new car, how you feel high on life for about a week, two weeks maybe, especially if it's a red convertible. I did that. I got a red convertible. That was my midlife crisis car. And I love it. And it made me happy for 48 hours. And then I just realized it was a car, you know? And then it got its first ding. And then I realized it was a car. <laughs> so we all go through this and we all get this kind of punch and then we lose it and we don't understand what's happened unless we have some kind of training. Now the Buddha teaches us that the causes for suffering are non-virtuous habitual tendencies. Oh, and you think, oh, well that's new. If I'm a bad girl, I'll get spanked. How Like I haven't heard that before. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that whatever appearance or display one sees in phenomenal reality has a root cause. There is a full equation happening here. This equals this. The seed is the same as the fruit. Apple seeds, apple fruits, right? Pear seeds, pear fruits. Apple seeds, cantaloupe fruits, no. <laughs> apple, apple. The seed and the fruit are exactly the same. Now this may sound like, oh wow, she thinks we're really stupid, but we don't act like we understand this. The Buddha teaches us that in order to create prosperity, in order to create, in order to have you know, what you need and to not be worried about being hungry and to have enough, you know, just plenty and, and not be stressed out by poverty. If that's the case and, and if that's your reality, then most likely in the past you were generous. You were giving. And so having planted that seed of generosity, the fruit of prosperity and abundance appears. Unfortunately, if we don't remember having been generous, if it was like 10 lifetimes ago or something like that, we may not understand that that's where that prosperity comes from. And we may think, great, I'm cool, I'm bad, I got money, and I'm gonna get more. And that would be a shame. That would be a shame because the seed that provided for that abundance is no longer being planted. My experience has also been, and this is something I've directly seen, talk about instant karma. I have seen that at times in my life where the money became short, 
I started giving stuff away. And I give stuff away to where I, I give everything away. And lo and behold, the cycle breaks. And any time I find that the flow is interrupted, that the cyclic flow is interrupted, I look into my mind to see where I'm being not generous, where I'm being closed and ungiving. And I try to remedy it. And even if I think, well, I'm doing the best I can, I think, well, in some previous life, there must have been some fault. And so now I'm going to do double time in generosity. And I found out that while it looks like I'm giving away all my stuff and it looks like I might be poorer than ever, it never happens that way. It never happens that way. As soon as I apply the antidote, the problem becomes solved. That has been my experience. And I have, you know, I, I feel like I can teach you that because I've seen it work. I've really seen it work. So, understanding that the seed and the fruit are consistent, consistent, and that cyclic existence is naturally flawed in such a way that you really can't collect anything here that is material and take it with you. Well, what's a girl to do? How should we practice? What, how should we, how should we live? The Buddha teaches us that if we plant virtuous seeds of good conduct, generosity, of making offerings, of mindfulness, of prayerfulness, of contemplativeness, that these seeds will eventually provide fruit, the fruit of realization, the fruit of awakening. And that all of the different aspects of the path really rest on two legs. And that is the accumulation of wisdom and the accumulation of knowledge. And that not only do we have to be knowledgeable about the cause and effect relationships that comprise the experience that we have and make the world that we live in, but that somehow we also have to give rise to wisdom, which is the realization of the emptiness of self-nature and of all phenomena, the non-clingingness. That is the way to practice. And in order to practice in that way, again, we have to be motivated. And that motivation is the contemplation of the faults of cyclic existence. So when we practice in that way, the Buddha teaches us once again that to give rise to this awareness, one also must give rise to the bodhicitta. One, one has to study and contemplate on and give rise to the bodhicitta. What is that all about? Okay, explain this bodhicitta exactly. I mean, I keep throwing around this word and it sounds really cool, but what does it exactly mean? <laughs> well, it would take more time than I have here, I think, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. First of all, 
Once again, the bodhicitta is the very display of enlightenment. It is the very display of the Buddha nature. If you can imagine the Buddha nature in appearance form, if you could imagine that primordial wisdom, uncontrived view in a display form, it would be the bodhicitta. In the same way that the sun displays itself in its, its rays, and its rays, although its rays touch and reach everything, they may not be in themselves visible, but they are absolutely there and completely inseparable from the sun and are part of the reality of the sun and how it reaches what it reaches. So it's a decent analogy. It works. You can think about the bodhicitta in that way. But in truth, the bodhicitta has two main characteristics or qualities or uh, there two kinds, you could say, of bodhicitta that one can practice. They are like the two eyes or the two legs of one's practice. They have to be brought into fruition identically, uh, in balance, the same. You can't do one without the other. Both elements of bodhicitta have to be practiced. And it goes like this. There is what we call ordinary <coughs> bodhicitta. It is ordinary. It is... What is the word I'm looking for? What is that word? Huh? common, yeah. There was another word. No, no. Relative. Well, no, there's another one. I can't think of it. I have another word. I use it all the time and I can't think of it. There's ordinary bodhicitta that is like common. And what makes it ordinary is that it's accomplishable with what we have as human beings in samsara. Ordinary bodhicitta is compassion or kindness that, that can be solved or that arises from our samsaric experience. Can you understand what that means? What that means is this. Let's say you're hungry and I feed you. That's compassion. That's a kind thing to do. But it's ordinary because your hunger arose from a samsaric body and the means to feed you arose from ordinary food, samsaric food that we found in this world. So that equation is understood to be just common, ordinary, unexceptional. Mundane, that's it. That's the word. It is mundane. Let's take another example of that. Let's say suddenly I became very rich. We're talking rich beyond anything you can believe, to where I could, if I took my money, let's say I could feed everybody that was hungry, all the people in Kosovo and all let's, the third world countries where there is, there is uh, all kinds of poverty and so forth. Let's say anyone that was needful or hungry I could pay for them to eat for the rest of their lives. Let's say I was that rich, and I did so. And beyond that, let's say I was rich enough also to get each and every person who was sick some medical care. 
for the rest of their lives. That would seem like if I had that money and I did that and I solved that many of the world's problems, don't you think that would be an extraordinary thing to do? But actually, that is considered mundane or ordinary, bodhicitta. Because I would only be solving the needs of people in this world, and I could only solve their temporary needs, their impermanent needs. Even if I could feed and care for these beings until the end of their lives, how can I follow them into the bardo state? My money won't do that. How can I enable them to gather together the necessary virtuous qualities in order to have a happy life in the future so that they won't be poor again? How can I teach them how to plant the seeds so that in their next life they don't just have the same reality come up because the karma is still there? Now, even if I had that much money and I could feed, house, and give medicine to these beings from now until the time of their death, that is simply an ordinary or mundane capacity. Now, if you have that kind of money, I invite you to save the world. And I'm serious about that. If we have the capacity to help, we should always do so. The practice of this mundane or ordinary bodhicitta is absolutely necessary. It is part of our practice and our responsibility. But there is also something called supreme or extraordinary or ultimate bodhicitta. And what is that bodhicitta? Well, it's the bodhicitta that I decided I needed to have when my little, when my son, well my little sons, my sons are bigger than God now, um, when my sons were born and they were just babies, when they were little guys, I remember being so moved with the whole motherhood thing. Oh, I, just to hold that baby in my arms, I remember thinking there was this wound in my chest, you know, it was just this big opening, I just couldn't, I wasn't, I was just, well, you know how you get when you're a new mother, you're all juicy and stuff. <laughs> and I was in love with my children. I was just in love with them. I just, I couldn't think about much else, really. I, I just cherished them. And um, I remember being all emotional about this, and I held my little baby in my arms, and I said, Wherever you go, whatever happens, I will always be there for you. I will always comfort you and make sure that you have everything you need. I would never let you down. I would never let you down. And then I realized that I was lying. Because if my child were to die right now, unless I had accomplished something beyond ordinary bodhicitta, there's nothing I could do. If my child were to enter into another life, a life of suffering, I would be unable to help this baby. 
And here I was promising him that I would always be there for him. It occurred to me that something wasn't right there. And it made me feel even more dedicated to practicing this ultimate or extraordinary bodhicitta because eventually it came to me that it's not only just about my sons or my daughter. It's that this is true of all sentient beings. Unless I were to really practice and accomplish the Buddha Dharma, unless I were to really practice and give rise to the bodhicitta, I could not look any of you square in the eye and say, I will not abandon you. And I wanted that. I want that so much. I want to be able to be of benefit to sentient beings. I want this suffering to stop. So I realized that this was a situation that needed remedying. And then I met up with the Buddha Dharma. And I began to study the activity of the Bodhisattvas. That the Bodhisattvas, through their compassion and through the excellence of their practice, return again and again and again in whatever form is necessary in order to lead others out of suffering. And I said, yeah, that's it. That's what I want. That's, that's the way to spend one's life. That's what I call a noble human existence. So I felt very motivated. And I was fortunate that I went through things in exactly that way, in a very Western kind of natural way. It just all made sense to me, because I feel like now I can explain it to you. And I can explain it in a way that's more reachable, more relevant in our culture. This extraordinary ultimate bodhicitta is that level of practice, that level of wisdom and awareness that we gain through our practice that allows us not only to take the bodhisattva vow as we took yesterday, but to fulfill the bodhisattva vow. To actually be in a position spiritually to be able to return consciously for the sake of sentient beings to know that once I had formed a relationship with any being that I could return for them in some way and maybe teach them and maybe help them out of their suffering that I could make that decision that to me was the only way to practice and the only thing that made sense It only makes sense when you realize that in truth, when we realize ultimately and awaken fully the way the Buddha has realized, we know that we are not separate, that I simply cannot be free without you. And so I have found it to be very worthy to practice this ultimate bodhicitta to give all that I can to returning again and again and again to constantly make these aspirational prayers and to constantly do whatever practice is necessary to return again and again in order to bring the Dharma, the teachings as to how to plant virtuous seeds to all sentient beings.
you know, you can count on that's, that's what I'm going to be doing for a very long time. My prayer has always been, may I be the last. May I be the very last. May my eyes see everyone liberated. That's the prayer of a bodhisattva. And that kind of practice, that consideration that all sentient beings are equal, and since there are so many more of you than there are of me, you are so much more precious. So it's with that idea that we take up our practice. It's with that understanding that cyclic existence is flawed, that suffering is all-pervasive, that all sentient beings are exactly equal and struggling to try to be happy. And that I cannot be free or happy without your freedom and your happiness because we are the same. We are the same. So having engaged on the path of the practice of ultimate bodhicitta, I feel that maybe I can look at my son. Well, he's a little bigger now, so I can't... Maybe I can look at my daughter. Maybe I can look at you and say, I will not abandon you. But still, that's not enough. Do you know why? Because even though all sentient beings have within them the seed of enlightenment, and equally so, and even though all sentient beings hold that Buddha seed and its very potential, not all sentient beings, because of their karmic interactions, have created the necessary karmic connections with the path or with a method that can lead to liberation. They simply don't have the connecting circumstances. They have all the potential, but no connection. Perhaps they have no connection with the path itself and no connection with anyone who is practicing the path. That's very common, more common than you think. That to me is unthinkable. To have the seed for liberation and never meet with the teaching, never meet with the method, never know how to give rise to happiness, how to be free, never even to have a clue how one should behave or how one should think in order to end suffering, in order to even stop one's own suffering. To me, that is the most unthinkable thing of all. And so, that's why I'm passing the baton on to you. That's why my greatest joy is administering to others the Bodhisattva vow. Because there are a lot more of you than there are of me, and the chances are you have connection with a lot more sentient beings than I do. Lord Buddha says that we have existed since time out of mind, so many lifetimes in so many different forms. We have formed just uncountable connections. 
You have formed connections with sentient beings that I don't have. So maybe I might have here the method for you, but you, you've got friends. So the greatest joy in my life, really, is to confer the ordination of the bodhisattva on others, which is what we did yesterday. To invite you to practice both mundane and mundane, ordinary bodhicitta, that is the kind of generosity that we can ordinarily practice in our world, and to practice that ultimate supreme bodhicitta, accomplish your path. Accomplish the means by which we can attain liberation and make that commitment to return again and again for their sake. There are some sentient beings who, having the Buddha seed, know no one but you, have a karmic connection with no one but you. And your connection to the path is their only hope. Your connection to enlightenment is their only chance. And so I ask you, every time that you move a little closer to really working at your path and moving through the stages of, of practice, and every time that you accomplish anything of the Buddha Dharma, any even small making an offering, Please dedicate that effort to the liberation of, and salvation of all sentient beings and remember those that have hopes of you. Those ones who have no connection but you, you are all they have. For their sake, you must practice. You must achieve liberation. You must learn to understand the faults of cyclic existence and learn to engage in the activities that bring about liberation, not only for yourself, but for their sake. This constant awareness of the others, this mindfulness is essential not only for our practice, but for our happiness. Haven't you ever noticed, even in your own experience, that people that are completely self-absorbed are the most miserable people on the face of this earth? There it is, right there in front of you. You've seen it with your own eyes. And even when we ourselves have gone through a period of extreme self-absorption, when we come out of it and we think about anybody else and what they're going through or what they're experiencing, it kind of blows us away and we go, wow, where was I? And you realize that during that time, the mind is tight, it's crowded, it's inflamed, desire, or you never get a moment's peace when you're self-absorbed. All you can think about is what you need next. You never get a moment's peace. You can't even get any rest. You don't even leave yourself alone for that long. 
It's like when you look out at the world, you see, you know, people look like T-bone steaks to you. <laughs> you know, who am I going to eat today? <laughs> and that <laughs> desire keeps us wanting, 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 wanting that self-absorption. There is no happiness in that. No happiness in that. And so to practice this supreme generosity, this ultimate bodhicitta, this mundane bodhicitta, not only is this the way to liberation, not only is this the way to leave this world a better place than you found it, not only is this the way to practice as the Buddha has taught, but it's also the way to your personal happiness. Oh, but don't tell that to a person who is in the middle of self-absorption because they've got problems and they want you to solve them. <laughs> but if we can get past that point to where we have just a moment of clear view, perhaps we can understand that in that state of ego cherishing, neediness and constantly trying to get what you need, there is no practice. That is the opposite of the way of liberation. One's going deeper and deeper into suffering and samsara. And so I beg you not only to practice for your own happiness, but to practice for their sake as well. podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot